How's everyone doing this morning? Good? Purple. Awesome, Connor. Glad to hear it, buddy. Anyone else feeling purple? Maybe a little blue, a little red? Hopefully not green. It's good to see you all. I'm Josh, one of the ministers. If this is your first time with us, welcome to the family here at Clear Creek. We are glad to celebrate Jesus together today. Hey, if this is your first time, I just want you to know you're loved and that you're welcome. Our mission as a church is to reach the next person for Jesus. Why? Because every person matters to God, so they matter to us. And so again, if this is your first Sunday, join us out at the Next Step table after service. It's in the... Right there in the lobby. And we'd love to say hi to you, get to know you better. I grab your paper that's on your seat. We're going to jump into this teaching called Practicing the Way, Practicing the Way. Here's the news. If you're like me, you've been adopted into the family of God. Yes, but isn't it true that it takes some time to begin to look like our big brother Jesus? How many in here, if we're honest, would say, some days I may be a part of God's family, but I don't look very much like my family. I don't look like Jesus. I don't live like Jesus. There are places in my life where I'm very disappointed, where I go, oh, really, again? And I think for a lot of us, we live in this place of frustration, and we think, is all that was supposed to happen in my baptism that I get saved for heaven, but nothing for now? And the good news is simply this. God does not simply save you for eternity. God wants to save you and change you right now. But there's a problem, and here's one of the problems. In our culture, every culture, by the way, has certain gods, certain idols that they worship, that they celebrate as preeminent. And in American culture, we have a couple gods. They are the idols to whom the American people, and yes, even Christians bow. We just don't even know it because it's in the air we breathe. And so this morning, I want us to take a step into some of the practices that actually confront and will liberate so many of us from those gods that we worship and we celebrate even without knowing it. So here's the good news. Here's the bottom line for this entire series called Practicing the Way. And here it is. You can become like Jesus. And here's how. You can effortlessly become like Jesus. How? By arranging your life around the same activities that Jesus arranged his life around. We use the illustration in week one of someone who wants to play a great piece of music. And what do they do? They sit down and what do they do? They just try really, really, really hard? No. I try really, really, really hard to play chopsticks and it still sounds bad. Anyone else with me? Trying harder doesn't fix an inability to perform. So what do you do? You take someone who cannot do it naturally and begin to help them organize the activities of their everyday life around the same activities as someone who can play the piano very well. And over time, they will begin to effortlessly do what once was impossible through sheer willpower alone. The way we become like Jesus is by organizing our lives around the same spiritual practices that Jesus wove throughout his life. And the result will be, we will eventually become like Jesus Christ. Are you with me this morning? Let's try that again. Are you kind of awake this morning? Anyone? Are you breathing this morning? Can we? Okay, good. A pulse? Good. So what we've been doing is we've been walking through the 15 core historical practices that have been practiced throughout church history and modeled by Jesus himself. And all these come from this wonderful little book by a man named Dallas Willard called, and it's up here on screen, called The Spirit of Disciplines. 
And this book has helped me in more ways than I can tell you because in it he says these are some of the practices and he marks through them the ways in which Christ organized his life around him. And as I have begun to embrace these things just little by little in my life, I find that becoming more like Jesus is not quite as impossible. Now, one of the key teachings, and if you will go to this, perfect, this slide here, is Willard talks about in his book that spiritual practices are divided up into two sections. You have those that are called practices of abstinence, which simply means that you abstain from something. You don't do certain things. And then there are practices of engagement, meaning these are the practices that you do, things that you move into. And just like breathing requires that we breathe out certain air and then breathe in fresh air, Abstinence is a breathing out and engagement is a breathing in. And so last couple weeks, we've looked at a couple each week. Two weeks ago, we looked at two abstinent practices of solitude and silence. And last week, we looked at study and prayer. I invite you to go back and look at those because these build on one another. But today, we are going to go back to this section to abstinence and look at two of the practices that will free you up from the control that the world often has, and in particular, the American culture has, even on people within the church. So what are these two practices? Hold your breath. Here we go. This is going to be fun. I promise. First one, fasting. No. Anyone else in here going, we should have skipped today. Anyone else just kind of like, you know, we could have beaten the Baptist to lunch and not had to feel guilty beforehand. If you're Baptist, we love you. That's just sort of, okay. Now here's the thing. Here's what I'm trying to get at here. This is the first of these two that for many of us, we hear it. And if you're like me, you're going to have this little thing go, I don't need to hear this one. In fact, Little warning, there will be practices that we hear and engage with over the course of these weeks together. If you're like me, some of them you'll kind of write off, go, no, no, that doesn't apply to me. I don't need that one. Pay attention if you hear that in your soul. I have found in my own life that often the things that I believe I need the least are the things that God wants to use the most to free me in areas of life. And I believe this may be one for so many of us in this room. Now, what is fasting? Let me give a definition from Willard's book. He says, in fasting, we abstain, meaning we don't do, we abstain in some significant way from food and possibly from drink as well. By the way, you say, who came up with this idea of fasting? Did Christians do this? That's a terrible idea. And the answer is no. Christians didn't come up with it. In fact, the Jewish people didn't come up with it. The idea of fasting has been practiced for thousands of years in all different religious groups and cultures. It's not unique to us, but what is unique to us is the purpose behind the practice. Willard goes on and he says this. This discipline teaches us a lot about ourselves very quickly. It will certainly prove humiliating to us as it reveals to us how much our peace depends upon the pleasures of eating. Isn't it true? Sometimes we find pleasure and look for pleasure in the consumption of food. And he goes on by saying this. It may also bring to mind how we are using food pleasure to, notice this, assuage The discomforts caused in our bodies by faithless and unwise living and attitudes, such as lack of self-worth, meaningless work, purposeless existence, or lack of rest and exercise. Here's all that he's trying to say there. Isn't it true? Sometimes we run to things, we cover up the pain of what we're feeling through, in this case, food or drink, and it becomes a crutch. But when we remove it, we begin to see the areas that underneath need renewal by God. And he finishes with this statement. If nothing else, 
Fasting will certainly demonstrate how powerful and clever our body is in getting its own way against our strongest resolves. It's that 2 a.m. craving for Oreo cookies. It's that moment where you go, I shouldn't, but I will. Our bodies have this power over us, don't they? So this is why, this is what it is. Now, a couple of questions. What is fasting? There are two types of fasting, if you want to write this down. The first one is what is called a partial fast. A partial fast in which you abstain from some food or drink for a time. There are examples of this in the scriptures. For example, uh, the Old Testament character of Daniel. What does he do? He fasts from the choice food of the Babylonians and he eats only vegetables and water for a certain period of time. That's a partial fast. You have others who do it throughout church history. Um, Saint Anthony. He would go for long periods of time eating only bread and drinking only water. Or I think about some of my friends who grew up in the Catholic church, maybe some of you. You know that during the season of Lent leading up to Easter, you give up all forms of meat except for fish. By the way, if you live in a place that has a lot of Catholics, you'll notice advertisements begin to change during the Lent season. When we lived in Houston, there was a large Catholic population in parts of the area, and we knew it was Lent season whenever the McDonald's sign would change, highlighting their filet of fish sandwich. Now, I don't know how that's holy for anyone, but that's another story entirely. So you have partial fast. The second one is simply a complete fast, a complete fast where you abstain from all food and sometimes, it's important, sometimes drink. By the way, let me give you a couple examples of partial fast and then we'll go to this. A couple examples would be things like giving up just sugar for a period of time or dessert or maybe a particular drink you like or a, a particular type of food. That's partial, but a complete fast, you give up all food and sometimes certain types or all drink as well. Now, there are lots of examples of this in Scripture. For example, Moses had not one but two 40-day complete fasts. That's some dedication. I can't go to lunch before I'm ready for something. So there's Moses. You also have a number of other people. You have Nehemiah. Before he rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, he fasted and prayed for a period of time, a complete fast. Uh, Queen Esther. When the Israelites were in danger of extermination, she called all the people to pray and fasting, a complete fast. And then, of course, the most famous of all is Jesus himself with his 40-day fast in the wilderness. So what in the world or why in the world would anyone want to do this? It sounds absolutely terrible. Let me give you something. First, let me tell you why not to fast. Because I think we need to clear this up. Number one, we don't fast to lose weight. It's not about weight loss. That's not the purpose. Now, some of us are going, okay, Christmas is coming, Christmas cookies. I need to lose a little bit of weight so I have room to grow in December. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Some of us, I'll be the first to admit, I could live off the fat of the land for a little bit. So I say, I'll fast. In fact, I began a few months ago to notice in my social media feed and when I was surfing the web, I'd start seeing all sorts of advertisements for this thing called intermittent fasting. Any of you ever heard of one of these things where you eat only during a certain period of time and it's to lose weight? By the way, when I see this image, my first thought is, which one of those am I? And it's really depressing. But then that's not what it's about. It's not about weight loss. The second thing that it's not about is it's not a hunger strike between you and God. You know what a hunger strike is? A hunger strike is where someone says, I will not eat until someone or some group acknowledges me or changes their behavior. 
Some of us go to God and think that we must pray and fast to get God's attention and to act on our behalf. But friends, that is not biblical. We do not see where God will not listen to his kids unless we harm ourselves or do something to ourselves. That is a pagan notion. In fact, throughout Scripture, what we see is it's not about, as we'll look here in a moment, it's not about abstaining in a way of trying to get God's attention. It's something else, something deeper than that. So if it's not these two things, then why in the world would anyone want to fast? Here it is, if you want to write this down. Fasting frees me. There's that word freedom, because all of these practices are about freedom. Fasting frees me from being enslaved to my appetites. And to be filled by God. Fasting frees me from being enslaved to my appetites. Let me give you a couple ways in which we see this play out. Um, There's this really curious moment in Scripture. In fact, Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says that this one verse in Matthew chapter 9 may be, hear me now, may be the most important verse in the Bible. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think he's on to something. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has some people come to him and say, Jesus... The Pharisees, the religious leaders, as well as the disciples of John the Baptist, they fast like all the time. But your followers with you, they never fast. What's the deal? And in verse 15, Jesus says something incredibly powerful. He's going to call himself the bridegroom. And this is what he says. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom, meaning his disciples of him, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom, talking of himself, when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Here's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, while he is present, it's a party. Everyone's enjoying life and his followers are enjoying to the fullest. But when he ascends to the Father, when he goes back to heaven and is no longer with them in physical form, then they will fast. Why? It is a way of remembering their longing for the one they miss and the one that they were made for. In that moment where you fast and you feel the hunger pain of your body, just as your stomach needs food, you are reminded, and I am reminded that we need someone much bigger because we were made not simply for food. We were made for the one who created all things, God himself. And if I keep covering that up always and always and always, I will hear it in the back of my mind, but I will never feel it fully. One of the reasons we fast is to be reminded of our longing of being with Jesus. There's another reason, though. There's actually a feasting on God and with Jesus that happens in fasting. Do you remember that moment when Jesus in the wilderness is tempted by the devil? Do you remember this moment? Jesus goes out. And this is what we read in Matthew chapter 4. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights. By the way, we're about to hear The biggest no-duh statement in the entire Bible. Are you ready? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Thanks, Matt. That is obvious, isn't it? Why? He was hungry. And then while he was hungry, the tempter, that's the devil, came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. By the way, isn't it interesting that often we find our identity in what we consume? Hey, if you are who you say you are, prove it. Show me by what you consume. Some of us are so consumed by what we consume, we never know who we truly are. He says, But if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus says... It is written, man shall not live, notice this very key phrase, on bread 
alone. Bread is important, but there is a deeper need of the human soul that many of us never experience because we cover it with all these other things. We were not made simply for bread. We were made for God himself. In fasting, we are reminded of our longing, and yes, we actually experience this food from God. Jesus, one day, was being... He was hungry and his followers went off to get some food. And then he has that encounter with the woman at the well. Do you remember this moment? And afterwards they come and they have the food. They say, here you go, Jesus. And he's like, I'm good. They're like, someone come feed you already? He goes, I have food you do not know of. It is the bread or the food of doing the will of my father in heaven. In other words, there is this deep satisfaction that comes when we are with God in these moments. So how do we do this? Let's walk through this very quickly. And we'll get to number two. Three things if you are curious about trying this. And I would encourage everyone here, just try it a little bit sometime this week. In fact, you can try it today. I'm going to give you very easy three options. Here's the first one. I would encourage you today, when you go to lunch perhaps, pause before you eat. Take 60 seconds. Don't just plunge in. Don't put your face into the bowl. Take 60 seconds to simply pause and become aware of your own hunger. It's a mini fast. One minute. Can we do this? Give me a little head nod if you can think you can do a one minute fast. Yeah? It's a simple moment to say, I am hungry, but what I hunger for is more than what is in front of me. Second, stop eating before you normally would. Just stop eating before you normally would. Now, I know American portion sizes are huge, so that might not hurt Josh to do anyway. But stop, not because you're trying to lose weight, but because you are reminding yourself that man does not live on what he consumes. Man and woman, we survive on the presence of God. It is simply one more way to remember that we are in need of something greater than what we put in our stomachs. And finally, you can try this this week. Fast from a favorite or regular food. A favorite or regular food, whatever that is. Maybe it's pizza, maybe it's ice cream, maybe it's a steak. I don't know what your thing is, but for maybe a day or a week, just say today, I will choose to abstain and just practice this. Now, the second practice goes hand in glove with it. We're going to move quick. So get those pencils or pens ready. The practice, the next one is frugality. Everyone say on the count of three, frugality. One, two, three. How many of you know what that even means? Anyone? How many of you don't want to know what that means? You're like, it sounds not fun. All right, let's just talk about this. One of the great lies of the West is that you are the sum of what you own. And many of us have become owned by what we think we own. Frugality is simply this. Willard says, in frugality, we abstain from using money or goods at our disposal in ways that merely gratify our desires or our hunger for status to look good in front of others. Glamour, that's the appearance we have, or luxury, that would be like comfort. I'm going to say that again. In frugality, we abstain from using money or goods at our disposal in ways that merely gratify our desire or our hunger for status, glamour, or luxury. Our world tells us that we are what we consume, we are what we own, and then we are owned by what we have. That is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, the reason frugality feels painful is because we're constantly told that one day more will be enough. 
More money, more status, more things, a nicer car, a bigger house. More is all we need to feel like we have enough. But here is the painful truth. In between more and enough is a chasm that can never be bridged. Just ask someone who has tried and they will tell you, I still feel something empty inside of me. I will sometimes illustrate this by asking, who is more content, the man with $1 million or the man with 12 kids? The correct answer is the man with 12 kids. Why? Because he does not want any more. I love, there's this great story that uh, this book, Atomic Habits by James Cleary, talks about this, this um, let me share with you just the story. There's a man named Denis Diderot. He's a French philosopher. In fact, he wrote a lot of the encyclopedias, the original ones. And this is his story. It's very fascinating. His daughter, Diderot's daughter, was going to be married. He had almost no money, and Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia, heard about his financial problems and brought or bought Diderot's library for a huge amount of money, but let Diderot keep all the books. She paid him a salary to be the librarian that would take care of his own books till he died. Now, Here's what happens. Diderot was absolutely thrilled. This meant that he had enough money to pay for his daughter's wedding. In fact, he had enough left over that he was able to buy for himself a beautiful scarlet robe. Now, James Clear writes that it was so beautiful that Diderot immediately noticed how out of place it seemed when surrounded by his more common possessions. I got this beautiful scarf, but everything else now looks so drab. In Clear's words, he says, there was no more coordination, no more unity, no more beauty between his robe and the rest of his items. Diderot soon felt the urge to upgrade his possessions. He replaced his old rug with a new one from Damascus. He decorated his home with expensive sculptures and a better kitchen table. He bought a new mirror to place above the mantle and his old straw chair was relegated to the antechamber, by a, but he got a new leather chair. Like falling dominoes, one purchase led to another purchase, led to another purchase, led to another purchase. Now this has come to be known as the Diderot effect. This desire that one thing, one purchase leads to another. And the Diderot effect states that obtaining a new possession often creates a spiral of consumption that leads to additional purchases. So you think, I just want to get me a little boat. So what do you do? You go out. You say, I'm going to get me this little boat. But oh no, I need something to carry this little boat on. So you go buy that little thing to carry the little boat on. And then you say, but wait a minute. I need a bigger vehicle to pull my little boat because my little car won't pull my little boat. So I got to get a little van or a little truck or something else. And then you say, well, now I need a place to store my little boat. And so what do you do? You got to build onto the house. And on and on it goes until those possessions we think will give us freedom possess us. That's the Diderot effect. So why in the world would we practice this? Please write this down. Frugality frees me from the lie that I will be content with just a little more. Friends, It is a lie. 
There's a chasm between more and enough. And if you continue to pursue more, 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 me, 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 you will find that you are emptier still because you will have looked for hope in one place only to be let down again. See, the spiritual practices, it's not simply about trying to be good. It's not about trying harder. Friends, the Lord invites us into this practice to free us from the things that hold so many of us in the chains of consumerism. And to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that we hold our hands loosely with our possessions because, quick question, who owns all the things that we have under our roofs? It's all God's. And practicing this simply is a reminder that I am not God, nor are my things God. This is why Jesus says, life is not measured by how much you own. The Hebrew writer goes this way, he says, keep your lives Free, there you go again, it's for freedom. Free from the love of money. How do I know if I love money? If I'm content. And be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. See, a lot of us exchange the need of God for these other things. He says, don't worry about all this stuff. Be content because I'm here and I am ultimately what you are craving. Finally, I love what the Apostle Paul says when he says, but godliness with Contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. See, friends, yes, there is a great gift in being frugal. And yes, in frugality, we are freed from this idea that we'll be content with a little more, but there's something else that happens here. In frugality, it enables me to live a generous, a generous life, just like Jesus I'll end with a story and then a couple ways to practice this. There's another man, and I read this in the book, The Psychology of Money. But there's another man by the name of Ronald Reed. Reed grew up in a very poor family in Vermont. He had a walk to school or hitch a ride, and school was a four-mile jaunt one way. He did not have much money, but he worked hard. As a child, he worked hard and then he grew up. He went into the military. But when he left the military, he came back. And for 25 years, he worked as a gas station attendant. He pumped gas. He helped wipe windows. He did that for 25 years. Then he retired. He got bored. So then what did he do? He goes back into work. How? He became a janitor at a JCPenney's. Did that for decades. He married later in life. He had no kids of his own, but he had stepkids that he loved like his own, and he cared for them and took really, really good care of them. He would go to the local hospital regularly for cups of coffee, and he'd just visit with people. Well, one day while he was at the hospital, a man said, did you know there's a, there's a library just down the road? I know how much you like to read, Ronald. You could go down there and read. And so he did. He started going down there, and he'd pick up books, and he just did that for the remainder of his years until he passed away in 2014 at the age of 92. Now, here's the interesting thing. This man who lived in a very tiny house, by the way, the house he bought for he and his family, it was the original tiny home. You guys look online like, oh, they're so new and invoked. No, no, this thing was just a little matchbox. He paid $12,000 for it. By the way, $12,000, that's it. Isn't that amazing? Wow. He bought this place. He lived very frugally. When he died in his will, he willed the library $1.2 million dollars. And he willed to that wonderful hospital that let him come in, have free cups of coffee, $4.5 million. You say, how in the world did he do that? I could barely keep two nickels in my pocket. One of the people who wrote about Ronald's life said this. 
Ronald understood how brief our time on earth really is. So he saved and he invested. Why? So that he could be generous. He had a purpose behind what he did. He was remarkably generous because he lived a frugal lifestyle. Not because he had to and not because anybody forced him to or told him he needed to. He simply wanted to be able to give. He wanted to be generous. He found a freedom that Christ invites every one of us into. That the frugal life, the one that is not constantly consumed by consuming, is now the life able to be generous. See, for Josh to be able to give, I must first find ways to not consume. Many of us wish we could give. We go, boy, I'd love to give. I'd love to tithe. That's 10%. I'd love to do more than that. I'd love to do these things, but I can't. See, friends, before we can engage There's some abstinence that may need to happen for each of us. And it is not because God needs your money. It is because you need more of God. And I do as well. There's this moment in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are told, you may eat from every tree. God is not the God of stinginess. He's a generous God. Amen? And he says, you can have all these things. There's fruit trees. There's all these types of exotic things that maybe we've never even tasted. He says, you can have them all. But there's one tree right there. Don't, don't, don't eat that. That's my tree. Now, there's a theology behind that we'll talk about at some point. But he said, just don't. Leave that one there. There's this curious little detail in the scriptures that most of us gloss over. But do you know where he placed that tree? In the middle of the garden. Why? For Adam and Eve to get to the thing they were not allowed to have, they first had to walk by every gift God had said, this is all yours. Sometimes I am so focused on the one thing I don't yet have, I miss all of the gifts God has given Josh. And one of the reasons so many of us live ungrateful, dissatisfied lives, we're looking at the one thing instead of saying, wow, thank you, God. Thank you for my friends or my family or my health. Thank you that I come in here and I have something in my stomach. I come in here and I have a church. I have a vehicle to get here. Or I had a friend who picked me up. Or I have legs to walk. Thank you, God. I don't want to walk by the good gifts of God anymore. But if I'm to be like Christ, it begins by saying, what do I have that I should appreciate? And what do I not need to keep getting that I already have plenty of? So let me give you three things to finish this morning out. Three small suggestions on how you might begin just practicing frugality this week. Number one, I would invite you to decide how much is enough. How much? How much is enough? I have a dear friend and mentor. He's very old now, but years ago he told me, Josh, my wife and I years ago decided how much was going to be enough. Now this man is freakishly wealthy. He could buy and sell me a hundred times over without blinking an eye. And so they decided years ago, when they got to this amount, that was enough. And every dollar after, they were going to give it away. They were going to live a generous life. And so they lived frugally. They got to that point. And here's the incredible thing. Here they are near the end of their life, and they give away over 90% of their income, and they live off of less than 10%. Why? Because they decided how much was enough. See, until I decide how much is enough, guess what? I'm always going to think more is what I need because enough is never enough. So today, you may need to get serious about knowing what your finances are. Get out of vague. Know what you bring in. Know what is going out. And then say, this is what enough looks like. Number two, don't wait until you feel 
generous to give. The feeling often follows the action. I never feel like working out, but I am always grateful after I have worked out. Is that an angel or our system? Okay. So number two, don't wait till you feel. Go ahead and dedicate time to do it. By the way, we make it very easy at Clear Creek. You can go online and you can set up recurring giving. You can make the decision today. Say, this is something we're going to do because it's that important. My wife and I, we set it up and we review it every year and we up it. And this is just the way we make it a part of our breathing out, breathing in. And then number three, spend a little less money than you normally would. Spend a little less than you normally would. So if you would go and get that super duper super sized drink, maybe just get a little smaller one this week. Or maybe instead of su- subscribing to five or six different media packages, maybe only one or two. Or maybe combine fasting and frugality this week and do something my family and I've done for many years. It's called just a rice and beans dinner. Every once in a while we'll do rice and beans. Why? Is it because we like rice and beans? No, that's not it. But it's a way to do less than what we have to and also to remember there are men and women around the world who love Jesus so much, who live on far less and experience so much more joy. And I want that. This is an invitation to freedom. You need to understand, friends, the Lord loves you and his call to you is always freedom. Why don't you try it this week and begin to see if maybe he will show up in a beautiful, fresh way. Let's stand together. I want to pray over you and then we'll sing this final song. With every head bow and every eye closed. Father, I thank you that you came and you lived the example of what a truly free life looks like. You were not consumed by the things you consumed, and yet throughout Scripture you had what you needed. You relied on the Father. You were a generous being in every way. You did not simply begin your generosity on the cross. You began it throughout your life in the way you lived and loved and gave to others. Lord, help me. Help Josh to be that way. And for my brothers and sisters here who are consumed by what they have, may you free them from the tyranny of what they own. I pray that we will all find, as we practice these simple little practices, that we do not earn your love, but we simply open ourselves up to receive power to be more like Jesus Christ. And as we do so, may we find that what we need is not more stuff, but we find the one that we need more of, and that is you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.